Chapter 9. Epilogue. The Humanities of Science. The word idiot had its origin in the Greek idiotes, a private person, a layman, a non-professional, unqualified by nature or nurture for participating in what was then uppermost in the life of mankind, the experiment of political democracy. This term, now sadly debased, might well be recoined to describe our modern scientific idiots, those cultivated men would avert their eyes from science and recoil from what they would take to be a priestly mumbo-jumbo of incomprehensibility surrounding the new growing tip of civilization, its sciences, and their associated technologies. The scientific idiocy of modern culture has now been diagnosed by many distinguished anatomists of our present state of melancholy, by Sir Eric Ashby, Jacques Bazun, Herbert Butterfield, George Sartun, and Sir Charles Snow, to mention but a few. There seems general agreement that any separation of the sciences from the humanities is a bad thing. The gap must be bridged, or it must be construed out of existence by considering science as a humanity or the humanities as sciences. Our educational system is failing by producing graduates who might well be awarded certificates of ignorance, either in the humanities or in the sciences. Our scientists and our humanists are both becoming deficient for the urgencies of civilization and scholarship because of their lack of knowledge on both sides of the fence. In the preceding chapters, I have tried by exemplification and by pleading to show that the mid-region between the humanities and the sciences is worthy of serious scholarly study. That is exciting, and that it might be useful. Only by dint of man-sized labor may all the traditional modes of thought of humanistic scholars and all their armory of techniques for inquiry be brought to bear upon the subject matter of science. This scholarship, moreover, tells more about science than any mere scientist can learn by osmosis in the course of its proper studies, and it must provide whole sections of history, philosophy, economics, and sociology of science that now exist as scholarly subjects only in the embryo. This, then, is my first claim. Here is a worthy subject of scholarship and research, a field in which all the humanistic techniques can be turned upon all the sciences. As such, it is the prime duty of any toiler in this field, as in any other, to pursue his studies, publish his monographs, and little by little reproduce his kind by training research students and giving them a guiding light, a little brighter than the one that lit his own steps. One could stop here. The subject would then be accorded full rights as a scholarly autonomy, like any of the other exotic specialities, such as Assyriology, Dante studies, or Geochronology, that are allowed a place in a few of the world's great universities, perhaps even a little institute all to itself. Many would argue that this is the only rational strategy of scholarship. Only those who must study this subject would then even find it and, what is perhaps more crucial, contrive some stunning device of foundation grant or peripheral bread and butter teaching post that would give them the academic leisure to pursue this devious end. Even most scientists and technologists and physicians would wait for their retirement and devote their terminal leisure to being self-made historians showing all the disadvantages of unskilled labor making ex-cathedra statements about science, but nevertheless producing, along with the chaff, some grain of first-rate works of high scholarship. This, in general, is the very way in which history of science and history of medicine, and to some degree philosophy of science, have operated until quite recent times. Clearly, there shall always exist this sort of learning while there yet survives honorable place for the lone scholar, for the inspired amateur, for the retired professional of gentle tastes. The great pioneers in our field were all such men, 
by foremost concern is to honor the names, uphold their ideals, and further teachings. The world of scholarship is not, however, composed exclusively of such men. The universities, colleges, and schools have a social contract by which they engage also in education of the population at large, in its training for lives other than the single-minded learning for jobs outside the world of the university. All the great lines of specialization in the humanities and the sciences are taught now to many more students than those that have an urge for this alone. Seen in this light, the academic machine for producing physicists or historians or philosophers or what you will has a waste product of more than 90% who do not become professionals at the research fronts of knowledge. Our society allows this because we have remarkably good use for this waste product in other directions, and also because it provides a very good sieve for picking out the bright and productive 10% or less in each field. It seems evident that we need the facility of this big machine for the humanistic examination of science rather than the little machine, minutely efficient though it be, of the Assyriology stage. There is an ample precedent for such necessary growth from isolated scholars of esoteric fields into the complex of large-scale subject, accepted as a normal major department of most sizable colleges. Many of our scientific disciplines emerge thus out of the region of natural philosophy. In another direction, the subject of economics might be an excellent parallel. Economics is a particularly apt analog, for we have attempted to show our discipline tries to do for the scientific world just what economics does for the world of business and commerce. Only as such a large-scale subject can our discipline act as an educational bridge between the arts and the sciences. Only thus can it produce its own 90% waste product of students who will go out into all those jobs and professions midway between the sciences and the rest of civilization. Only thus can we be sure of attracting, at an early stage, a sufficiency of the first-rate minds of this generation who need some exposure to the humanities or science before they can realize that it is here that they might make their major contribution. Here, then, is my second claim. Not only is the subject worthy, but it must be practiced as an autonomous large-scale field of study, not as a rare fragment of specialty. By insisting that a university department and our discipline must be large, we raise certain difficulties but solve many more. In the first place, only by this device can we increase ourselves beyond the ranks of those few isolated scholars who can acquire special dispensation from foundations and presidents, and those equally few who can claim with enough assurance that they can teach all the range of this subject that the deans and departments seem to require. One is as likely to find a single man to teach humanities of science as a man who can teach all history and all science. Less likely, indeed, for in our Bali work, one becomes highly conscious and of the contributions of non-Western civilizations, and must needs trespass on the lands of Arabist and the Sinologist. In a reasonably large department, one need only insist, and much more possible it becomes, that a man worthy of hiring need have only a good general background plus research front knowledge of some well-defined area, such as medieval physics, Greek astronomy, 17th century scientific societies, 18th century German medicine, or Lavoisier studies. The same is asked of the graduate student. At last, it all falls within the pattern of normal academic machinery. No longer need the poor migrant to our studies feel an incumbent upon him to write the definitive history of all science, or of some such large chunk of it, in order to demonstrate his qualification for calling himself an historian of science. Now, all he should need is good work. Insisting upon autonomy for the large-scale department creates, however, a special administrative difficulty for universities. Such a department is not born in maturity. It must develop slowly and keep in tune with the traditions and financial possibilities of the institution concerned. At many colleges, this has led to the growing up of such studies 
within an already flourishing department of history or philosophy, or from all or one of the science departments. In a few cases, it has been successful, and the man appointed has been sufficient of a giant to become recognized as an ornament of scholarship within the larger matrix, a man capable of attracting good students around him and producing work that meets with approval. In less fortunate cases, the subject becomes recognized only as a minor specialty with history or philosophy, or gets tacked on and hangs precariously to the coattails of the scientists. I do not know which is the lesser of these evils, but when the man is successful, his subject at that institution becomes a one-man show, and his students are often immediately recognizable as true scholars in the old man's tradition, but as little facsimiles sharing the master's foibles and enthusiasms. In a field so wide and so ramified as the humanities of science, we can no longer afford to exist solely in one-man shows. No one man can cover enough of the field with first-hand experience and teach it in a sufficient depth to give a fair start to the next generation. It follows, therefore, that however convenient it might be for an institution to start the seedling department within the shade of an older, fruit-bearing tree, be it of history or of science or philosophy, this is not calculated to induce vigor. It is better for our subject to stand on its own, contriving and needing good will from all its colleagues. Whether, lacking possibility of direct access, the appointee has approached his subject from the side of the sciences or of the humanities, he must not seek the allegiance of his erstwhile colleagues at the expense of those of the other side. He must strike a middle course, steer by the light of his own discipline, and have faith in its simple integrity. In but one more generation of students, we may perchance have enough of those who have grown up within this field primarily and cannot be regarded either as fragmented historians or perverted scientists. For the present, we must accept the hazards of our birth. The autonomy of the department is something that can always be insisted upon. The desirability of having many teachers must bend to the power of the dollar. If only one man can be appointed, let him be good at his trade rather than universal in it. If he knows only about William Harvey, he is probably better than a man who lays claim to the whole of history and philosophy of every science and choice bits of technology and medicine to boot. Only in a world of amateurs could one pretend to such monolithic omniscience. It is tempting at this point to ask, given such a department, autonomous and large scale, what does one do with it? How does it function? It is indeed tempting, for in addition to Yale, there are 46 colleges in the United States where history of science is taught. And, I believe, at 24, one can now earn a Ph.D. in the subject or in some combination of it with the philosophy of science. We are all faced with much the same problems, though I must admit that many of my colleagues do not agree with me about extending the subject to a large scale. Perhaps they have had too gruesome experiences with the massive required courses that some universities have instituted to build the famous educational bridge. At the level of the graduate school, the answer about methods and aims is difficult but not impossible. Clearly the student must come to grips with all, nearly all the traditional avenues of inquiry in our field, and in doing this, he must learn his special and peculiar techniques as well as those of the adjacent scientific and humanistic areas. One cannot demand the impossible, that students should all become adept in Greek, Latin, Arabic, and Chinese, but one can reasonably hope to secure a convert from time to time from our departments with such skills. The same holds for special scientific or historical skills. A territory such as ours holds many attractions, and we may hope to get suitable people. Two questions seem to need comment with respect to graduate work. What sort of students does one admit, and how should the portions of study be allocated? 
The customary answer to the first point is that the student must have ample scientific training as a basis, and as much historical feeling as possible. At least this must be the normal answer until such time as we can produce undergraduates trained in this area from the egg. It is not by any means to be taken as unexceptional rule, however, for there exist pathological examples to the contrary. It so happens that three or four of the most brilliant contributors to our studies have entered from the side of the humanities and have demonstrated their clear abilities to absorb and digest the science with an adequacy that is startling. Perhaps it is improbable, but not impossible, and one must therefore allow for the man who has always shown preference for history, let us say, but has managed to acquire, pass him, enough scientific backbone to read the Scientific American. Humanists who are worth assault will attract students other than those who hate science, abhor mathematics, and make themselves scientific idiots. The undergraduate level, the nature of courses, at this stage of development, is almost certainly experimental. From the point of view of traditional scholarship, it should be oriented so as to be a feeder for the graduate school. A student should be able, given sufficient ability and desire, to pass from his bachelorette into graduate work at the same or equivalent department without needing to take extra years for more science and more history. From the educational standpoint, that of helping to rid ourselves of scientific idiots, it is desirable that the new subject, Humanities of Science, should provide a matrix that will inject a sufficiency of science into the best possible liberal education as conceived within the framework of the humanities. Better still, if the new subject can be the mortar that holds together one part of the humanities and an equal amount of the sciences themselves. If this can be achieved, and I see every prospect of it doing so, it might well provide a more honestly scholarly way of teaching science to non-specialists than some previous attempts at general education in science. These attempts were very worthy and went part way to a solution, but they seemed to lack some element, and this lack made them suspect. Perhaps the new brand of subject matter, picked away from its tissue of science and history, might provide that element. To this end, my own proposal would be for a new undergraduate major, composed of about one part of the sciences, one of the humanities, and one of the history and philosophy of science. At both the graduate and undergraduate levels, there is need to tackle several questions that I have striven to leave unresolved by calling the subject humanities of science. What is the proper allocation and balance between history and philosophy of science, or scientific method, as it is sometimes called? What between the pure sciences and technologies? What about the sociology and psychology of scientists? What of the history of medicine? I would claim that these parts from an indissoluble complex must be vexing to dissect. I do not see how anyone can teach history of science without that of technology and of medicine, and vice versa. How could one teach the history of Connecticut without that of the United States, of Europe, and of the world? My own personal solution is to have the general histories of the physical sciences and of the biological sciences as a basic diet, followed by a selection of excursions into all the other areas technology, medicine, American science, medieval science, Islam in the Orient, etc., as opportunity and need dictate. My own preference, further, is for a staple food that is some three parts or four of history, two but one of philosophy, with a rare spicing of sociology and psychology of science. This is based not on any evaluation of the importance or interest of those respective fields, but merely upon the variety of subject matter and source materials with which the student must familiarize himself. One can, of course, spend a life's work in but one corner on any one of these sections. But for a good overall training, the student should have the privilege of being exposed to as much as possible of all the world has to offer. It is the advantage of the large-scale department that this can be done more efficiently 
It is the advantage of the large-scale department that this can be done more efficiently there than in a one-man show. It is the sweetness of autonomy that the graduating scholar is then qualified in his own right, and not as a mere subspecialist, imperfect as an historian, unproductive as a scientist. What, you may ask, are we to do with those who come out qualified as humanists of science? There is, I believe, an ample choice of answers for this. First, ours is one of the most rapidly growing scholarly disciplines in the United States, perhaps in the world. At each international congress and annual meeting, the Brotherhood is struck by the increasing number of new converts, a high proportion of them holding posts created since last we met. We shall need, for university teaching posts, many times over the present flock of doctorate graduates from the major institutions producing them. Eventually, too, we shall need high school teachers and teachers of such teachers. For it seems likely that humanities of science must, to some extent, displace science itself at this level as well. At another level, for both graduate and undergraduate students, there is an increasingly need for administrators of scientific organizations. The learned societies, the national and the private foundations, the post of political responsibility in science, the science attaches at embassies are all increasing rapidly and assuming a complexity and expertise that is beginning to put them out of range of a plain scientist. Even if they were sufficient for the task and ideally trained for it, do not have and cannot spare enough scientists to be kicked upstairs from the laboratory bench to the conference table. In industry, as I have been told repeatedly by the large scientific research establishments, the biggest manpower shortage is not at the research front, but in the region between there and the front office. Where else can industry get people educated in the best of the liberal tradition, but able to talk the language of the scientists and perhaps appreciate more deeply than they do for the inner mechanics of their art? Lastly, as I have tried to show throughout this book, science is part of the central core of our world. It is a core that is in the process of violent change, creaking and grumbling in the process and threatening us with uncontrollable deluges and eruptions. In this age, we need an informed and intelligent public to whom science and its workings, even in crisis, is not a mystery. Humanists of science at their research fronts might be able to diagnose the process, piece together parts of the mechanism of science, but only a public exposed in the colleges and schools to their findings about science can appreciate the depth and import of this cumulative activity that sets our culture apart from all that has come before. <laughs>